gang, I want you to open your Bible if you brought it and go to Luke's biography in the 17th chapter. Go to the biography of Jesus written by Luke and turn to the 17th chapter. I told you earlier in the service that I didn't quite finish last week, so we decided to make this a two-parter. And it's a two-part message revolving around the subject of light. Light as opposed to darkness. Truth as opposed to error. Just as physical light can overcome physical darkness, spiritual light can do the same. In fact, that's what I want to talk to you about today is spiritual darkness. The absence of physical light means physical darkness. The absence of spiritual light means spiritual darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now that's a pretty significant statement. It's a pretty profound admission. I am the light of the world, the Son of God proclaimed, meaning I brought light into a darkened place. I bring truth into a kingdom of lies. But he didn't stop there. Then he said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. That's a pretty significant promise, is it not? Especially when we live in a culture of darkness. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I warned you last time, I need to warn you again, especially if you're visiting for the first time today, I may sound like an Old Testament prophet during this message. You might confuse me with a, like an old school preacher during this message. Uh, in fact, what I say today might even offend some of you, but hear me, that only demonstrates the clouded judgment that exists in a culture of, ju- of darkness, in a culture that has denied the truth. Now, last time we used Luke 17 as the springboard. I want to use it again. It begins in verse 20. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. Verse 20 reads, once upon being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, now this was a very big deal to them, it was a very big deal to any Jew of the day, because their Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah for instance, had promised them a literal kingdom in which God was their king, but they hadn't seen it. In fact, the glory days of the kingdom of Israel were a thousand years removed in the past. The glory days of King David's ever-expanding kingdom were a thousand years in the rearview mirror. So these Pharisees want to know, when's this kingdom of God we've heard so much about going to arrive? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. In other words, it's not obvious. It's not that it's totally invisible, but compared to the kingdom of darkness, it can be difficult to see. It's not It doesn't have geographical boundaries. There is no nation's capital with a throne. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. I see it coming. Oh, I can tell the kingdom of God is on its way because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I love the last part. The kingdom of God is in your midst. I mean, that's something Clint Eastwood would say, right? The kingdom of God is in your midst. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the kingdom of God has arrived because the king has arrived. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. Now, while the Old Testament points to that 
coming literal kingdom one day. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. We call it the millennial kingdom or the millennium, a literal kingdom on earth where Jesus Christ is king. The New Testament, however, speaks more to this invisible kingdom, more to the kingdom of light. The kingdom that is only recognizable as followers of Jesus because he's the light and we possess the light, respond to that light. I put a graphic on the board. We live in two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of light if you're a follower of Jesus. It's invisible to most people, but it's obvious to those of us who are intentional in our faith. We possess the light. Doesn't mean we always respond to the light. Doesn't mean we always walk in it. Doesn't mean we are always right about everything we think just because we're a follower of Jesus and we have the light. But that invisible kingdom exists in the visible kingdom of darkness. The Bible makes it clear. Followers of Jesus possess the light. That's why we remain. That's why when we decide to follow Jesus Christ and our faith becomes authentic, that's why he doesn't just take us to heaven right then. He leaves us behind. Because if God took every Christ follower to heaven, as soon as they embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ, then there'd be no light in the world. There'd be no witness in the world. There'd be no reflection of the king in the world. That's how Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 15, when he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for future followers. He said the following, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one, the evil kingdom of darkness. Now, I want you to springboard over into Romans chapter 1. Paul no sooner introduces himself as the author of Romans. He then tells them he'd love to come see him face to face. But we're no sooner through the first 17 verses of the chapter, and bam, Paul brings down the hammer of judgment. Verse 18, read it with me. The wrath of God. It's quite a salutation to a letter, isn't it? The wrath of God is coming. That's judgment. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. People who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now follow me here. Because it is easy to study Romans chapter 1 and assume that the egregious sin that are, sins that are noted, that that's the reason for the coming judgment. But the judgment is not identified. No, you've got it backwards. The reason for the judgment is verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness of people who suppress the truth, who hide the light, who cover what is true. The sins that we're going to read about in a moment actually are the judgment. Last week we covered one of them. Today we're going to cover the other two. And you are going to be shocked, some of you, at how perfectly Romans chapter 1 overlays American culture. Keep reading. Verse 19. Since what may be known to God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. In Paul's mind, we should know better. In Paul's mind, it should be obvious that we have a creator, and that creator is sovereign, and that creator deserves to be put in charge of our lives. To Paul, that's obvious. God's made it plain. The next verse reveals that God's revealed enough of himself so that we are without excuse. 
We can't say we didn't know any better because we did. Now, because of this, skip down to verse 24. Therefore, therefore, because men seek to suppress the truth, to cover the light, because men choose darkness over light, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. The term gave them over is like handing someone to the warden, dropping someone off at the state penitentiary, the federal penitentiary. What Paul is saying is that because we chose to cover the truth, because we chose to hide the light, God just turned us in. He gave us what we wanted. He gave us what we've been clamoring for for decades. God gave them over. Verse 24, to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 24 contains the first judgment, the first evidence of judgment on the United States of America or any culture that decides to suppress the truth. Here it is, number one, the sexual revolution. For us, that began in the 1960s and 70s. Free love, no consequences. Popular culture suppressed the truth. We covered it up. We swallowed a lie when it came to sexuality. God's judgment then is he's giving us what we wanted. He's giving us what we asked for. The sexual revolution in America and all the turmoil, all the dysfunction, all the poverty, all the confusion is God's judgment. That is God's judgment, according to Paul. And it began when culture decided to lie. It began when culture decided to hide the truth. Now, moving on. Look at verse 25 of Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's the same thing. They covered the truth and they chose a lie. They suppressed the light and preferred darkness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Okay, that is either ancient animism the actual physical worship of birds and animals, or what I believe it to be in our culture is modern environmentalism. In the United States of America, the environment is more sacred than a baby in a mother's womb, sad to say. In the United States of America, the environment is more sacred than life. Keep reading who is forever praised, amen, verse 26. Because of this, here it comes again, God turned us in. He gave them over to shameful lust this time. Even their women, important word, even. Paul is surprised by what he sees. Even their women, he says, exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. That's lesbianism. And Paul is shocked at the idea because in Paul's mind, Men desire to have sex, but women desire to have babies. It doesn't make any sense to Paul. Why would they do this? Even their women exchanged natural relations with men for unnatural relationships or relations with each other. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. That's homosexuality. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty 
for their error. That leads us to the second evidence of God's wrath, God's judgment on a nation, the homosexual revolution. For us, that occurred in the 1980s and 1990s. The homosexual revolution is the second sign, the second evidence of a culture under God's judgment. This afternoon when you go home, take a little while and Google first century Rome. Their customs, their family, their beliefs, their value system, you will be shocked. The people to whom Paul addresses this letter readily embraced homosexuality. They not only embraced it, they celebrated it. They readily embraced, like the Hellenistic Greeks that preceded them, even pedophilia. It was commonplace in first century Rome for the man of the house to have a wife to take care of all the household needs and to have a 12-year-old boy or a 12-year-old girl as their sexual toy. Listen to me, church. I believe as sure as I'm standing here, I have no doubt that if America does not change her course, a hundred years from now, 40-year-old men are going to be marrying 12-year-old girls and 12-year-old boys, and we will arrive there the same way we arrived here. The homosexual revolution. Do you know if you were to go to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives, you'd encounter room after room, warehouse after warehouse, filled with shelves from floor to ceiling, Document after document, file folder after file folder of environmental impact statements. You see, in America, we have laws that if you're going to go build a bridge across the creek, you got to pour money into research. You got to study the environment. You got to find out if your bridge is going to impact the environment. Sadly, when it comes to something far more important than a plot of land, We're talking about the moral ecology of our nation. We're talking about who we are as a people. We're talking about the things we value. We're talking about what we teach our children. We're talking about our ethics. People argue that we can build the equivalent of a strip mall in wetlands and ignore the consequences. Consequences, incidentally, that the advocates of gay marriage choose to ignore. You see, we're just beginning to reap the consequences of the homosexual revolution. And in my mind, culture should be examining the impact these values have upon our children. You see, what's best for our children should matter to us. And by the way, we know what's best for our children. We have mountains of evidence that a father and a mother in a committed married relationship is best for our children. But the argument really isn't about fact, is it? The argument in our culture is not about data, is it? It's not about research, is it? It's about ideas. It's about free expression. It's about feelings. We know what is best for children in our culture, but that's not the debate. We should have laws that encourage and support strong families. But our laws in America do the exact opposite. Same-sex relationships have led to the total deconstruction of marriage and family. And again, we already know what's best. We already know that a father and a mother in a healthy, committed, loving relationship, that's healthier for the dad, that's healthier for the mom, that's healthier for the children. We know it's healthier We know it's better for our communities. 
Again, we have the data to prove it. But the argument isn't about the data because it's not about the truth. You see, when you devalue something that you should value, like strong families, you get less of them. You get fewer of them. And when you get fewer of them, society suffers. We're getting what we wanted, according to Paul. We're getting what we clamored for for decades. God's judgment is coming in the form of a homosexual revolution. And it's all because we spent six or more decades prior trying to suppress the truth, trying to cover it up. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, that's a problem. We have the knowledge of God. Paul said earlier, it should be obvious. When you examine the universe, when you study nature, it ought to be obvious. In the beginning, the Bible says God created male and female. It should be obvious. But we chose to ignore that information. We didn't consider the knowledge of God something worthwhile to consider, Paul writes. So what did God do? Here it comes again. He gave them over. He turned them in. But this time to a depraved mind. You know what that means, don't you? Insanity. Depraved means deviant, improper, disapproved, broken, so that they do what ought not be done, verse 29. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. That long list, that's what you get when you suppress the truth. That's what you get in an insane culture. The last verse reads, verse 32, although they knew God's righteous decree, man has both inner conscience as to the witness of God as well as the special revelation of Jesus Christ and the inspired word of God, although they know God's righteous decree and that such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, they also approve of those who practice them. That leads us to the third evidence of a culture under judgment, the irrational revolution. The irrational, insane revolution. It's absurd thinking. It's unthinkable to the sane mind. I'm a male. No. I'm a female. No. I'm a wolf. No. I'm a female again. That's insane. That's irrational. Look, in putting this together over the last couple of weeks, I've given a lot of thought to this. Here's what I've decided. I'm a 26-year-old professional baseball player making $3 million a year. I'd like to keep that in mind. It's insane. It's depraved. One author confidently proclaims there are at least 102 genders. I don't understand. 
government appointees and Supreme Court nominees of the Biden administration testified before Congress, and many of them refused to use the word man or woman. They wouldn't say it. Even when pressed, they'd use clever little responses like people who produce sperm and people who menstruate and have babies. It's insane. We're making laws in our nation to make the insane normal, to make the deviant acceptable. The irrational is what we celebrate, and it's happening all around the world. It's been happening for centuries across the oceans, but it's happening now in America because we live in an evil kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. You don't have to look any farther than the sexual revolution, the homosexual revolution, and the irrational revolution to realize that ours is a culture witnessing the judgment of God. Reality and fantasy have become interchangeable in our culture. Jesus had a confrontation with the Pharisees, the most religious supermen of the day, the thinkers in Jerusalem. John chapter 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, he told them. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You know, historically, human beings have valued the truth. When you go to the doctor, don't you want truth? Historically, mankind has treasured the truth until we didn't. Plato said, no one is hated more than he who speaks the truth. George Orwell wrote, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who dare speak it. We have never had a king so consumed with the LBGT agenda as our current king. We're making laws to normalize, to celebrate the lies. Do you know that our Secretary of State confidently, triumphantly vowed that we would fly the gay pride flag at every U.S. embassy around the world as if he'd accomplished something? It's insane. It's misplaced. And if you disagree, they have a word for you. Domestic terrorist. Hate monger. Homophobe. You have to be silenced. You have to be canceled. I read about an Air Force chaplain. Being a chaplain in the military was something I actually considered. I thought, what a great way to minister to our servicemen and women. That'd be awesome. Imagine being on a big ship going around the world. I'm glad I chose what I chose, but nonetheless. An officer by the name of Kurt Chizik, an Air Force chaplain of some 30 years, was fired from the Air Force not dismissed from his position, fired, dismissed from the Air Force for simply preaching a sermon in service against immorality. That's crazy. That's insane. Free speech and dissension. If you bring up the fact that you might not agree with that, if you bring up the idea that you're opposed to that line of reasoning, well, you've got to be stopped. Because if you're not stopped, you might violate someone's safe space 
You might trigger someone somehow. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is life in our current kingdom of darkness. In 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, and in doing so, they wrote, and I quote, religious objections to homosexuality come from hate. Mine don't. Mine don't. Mine come from truth. And just because I favor the truth over your particular orientation, that doesn't mean I don't love you. That doesn't mean I don't treat you with respect and kindness and grace. But according to the Supreme Court, I'm a hater. Sad to me that it's come to that. To object to the mainstream darkened culture equals hate. It's insane. The Biden administration is promoting a website called abortionfinder.com. You've heard of petfinder.com? Now we've got abortionfinder.com. Here's what they say. Abortionfinder.com seeks to help pregnant women get information on where to have an abortion and how to circumvent the parental notification laws where such laws exist. Parents, do you know what they're saying? They're saying if your 14-year-old daughter gets pregnant, abortionfinder.com can help her get an abortion and keep you out of the loop. That's just insane. That's irrational. That's what you get in a culture that suppresses the truth. Now, remember, this all began not with the sins themselves. The sins are actually the judgments. We're getting the culture we've been wanting. This all began when we decided to suppress the truth, when we decided to become self-sovereign. We are the authors of truth. We determine what is true and what is false. Well, my friends, this is where followers of Jesus Christ ought to stand out. In a self-sovereign culture of darkness, followers of Jesus Christ ought to stand out because we're anything but self-sovereign. At least, we're supposed to be. The very first thing Jesus said you have to do if you want to be my follower is deny yourself. It comes from, Romans, uh, it comes from Mark chapter 8. Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, first deny yourself. You're no longer the boss because the king has arrived. His name is Jesus. So as a follower of the light, possessing the light myself, this is where I ought to stand out. My marriage ought to look different than marriages in a darkened culture. My work ethic ought to look different than work ethics in a darkened culture. This is where we stand out. Followers of Jesus Christ are not sovereign if we just act like it. Again, Luke 17, Jesus told the Pharisees, the kingdom has arrived, it's in your midst, because the king has arrived. That's what you got to remember. That's where you find your optimism. That's where you find your hope in the darkness. Followers of Jesus Christ know the king. The kingdom is here because the king is here. He's alive in our churches. He's alive in our marriages, in our families. He's in our homes. We consult him on a regular basis. He's alive in our communities as we do business and try and solve problems and relate to others and light our world. You see, because every day, light confronts 
confounds and confuses the darkness. Paul understood what we're up against. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, the darkened kingdom, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I don't know for sure if you're aware, but there are a lot of famous people in this book who were once positioned in a dark and unexpected place. It was uncomfortable, but they were waiting for a divine assignment. In other words, darkness came before a new job, a new life, new work. Let me remind you that in a darkness of a dungeon... A man by the name of Joseph received his commission. He became the second most powerful man in Egypt. But the darkness came first. Let me remind you that in the darkness of midnight, Gideon realized his identity and became an invincible warrior and servant of God. In the darkness of a fish's belly, Jonah reconciled with God and became a missionary. In the darkness of insomnia, Samuel recorded God's voice and became the first and likely greatest prophet. In the darkness of a lion's den, Daniel recognized that God was the king of the beasts, and he became an evangelist to the Babylonians. In the darkness of a tomb, Lazarus was resurrected and became an example of new life because of Jesus Christ. In the darkness of blindness, Paul resolved to live a life for Christ, and he became the most influential man in the first century church, second only to Jesus himself. And through the darkness of death, Jesus Christ rose from the grave to become king in our lives and bring light into a darkened kingdom. So here's how I'm praying. I'm praying that this is the beginning of a revolutionary revival in America. I'm praying that this current darkness is eventually lifted and the light of God's truth revives the American spirit. But now let's be honest. You and I have very little influence, very little authority, or power in the current kingdom of darkness. But here's what we can do. We can let our light shine by the way we live. We can speak the truth always in love and doing what we can do to make the world a better place. I leave you with this verse, Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and it is he who will save us. Let's pray. Father, may your light shine through us in this place, but more importantly, in our homes, communities, and in our culture. May we refuse to back down because the light that is within us, your truth, as you have revealed it, can demolish strongholds. So may we begin by first taking our thoughts captive, shaking them down, patting them down, and making them obedient to your son Jesus. And then, Father, when we have the opportunity to speak the truth, I pray we do it in love. I pray we're not misunderstood. 
Father, let your light shine through us. I pray it in the name of the light, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. Have a happy fourth. I'll see you next time.